Several years ago, my friend told me this story about her sister's friend. They went on holiday to Ibiza or somewhere like that, and they were out clubbing one night. She meets this guy and they get on really well. They're kissing, they're touching, they're just having a really good time. Her friends catch up with her and he gives her a number and tells her to meet him later. She carries on the night with her friends and just completely forgets about this guy. The next morning she wakes up and she has a really nasty rash on her face. She goes to the doctor and he examines her. He says he just has to go and double check something but he'll be back in a minute. When he comes back he's with a police officer and they inform her that the only way you can get a rash like that is if you've been in contact with a dead body. She freaks out but then remembers the guy she was with last night so she passes on the details to the police officer. When they finally find him they search his house and find numerous dead bodies which she's had sexual contact with and if she'd met up with him that night she would have been one of them. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome everybody back to the show. Hi, all of you lovely, lovely listeners. I hope you're all doing well. And we're going to do something a little different today. Instead of our weekly affirmation, which you are all my beautiful little buttercups, my sweet little poodles, and you're just my favorites. So I guess we'll do both. But we're going to take a mental health moment. Oh, really? We are. I'm going to tell them that we've been growing a garden. We have. We've been growing a garden, and it's been a very rewarding experience. I fuss over the garden probably more than anyone has ever fussed over a garden. I love it. It's very good for my mental health. And so if you have a little spot where you can put a little pot and grow a little thing, I think it would be really good for you. I think it's nice to keep things that are alive around you. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know what you're saying. I know what I'm saying, too. And so just, you know, maybe focus on a potted plant as we dive into this week's episode. <laughs> and in case you haven't gotten the gist from the opening story, this episode's going to be pretty dark and icky. Icky. <laughs> so, you have been warned. <laughs> but before we get there, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. Thanks for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. We do want to remind you that you can reach out to us on social media at Just a Story Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also go to our website at justastorypod.com to find links to all of our fun sources. And there's artwork. And that artwork is not only on the website, it's on our merchandise. And from the website, you can find a link to the merchandise. How about that? Handy. Handy. As a pocket on a shirt. In addition to the merchandise link there's also a patreon link and patreon is a place where you can go and join the official family tree of just a story you're all part of the family this is where you get into the genealogy i guess that's so confusing i know i never said i was good at explaining things it's a place you can go and help support the show and also get fun prizes and extra episodes of the show. And there's one other way you can reach out to the Just a Story Pod family, and that is through our Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. You may dial the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. 
Once you've dialed that into your handy dandy communication device, you will be connected to our voicemail where you can leave a story, your life story, a love story, a poem, spontaneous love poetry, whatever you're feeling. It's like a three minute cap. It's not going to be much of a life story. People call back. Multiple times. And that's great. We love it. Seriously, we're not mocking you. I would call back like 10 times. So speaking of people contacting us, believe it or not. What? This week's story has been sent to us many times in the last few weeks, really, if not a month or two. Okay. So this one's actively going around. It must be. Okay. It must be. It's not a new urban legend. It's not. But it is making the rounds again. As they always do, they kind of resurface and they just scoot around for a few months and then go back to their hidey hole, deep, dark caves in the inner recesses of our minds. Mm -hmm. And then they emerge again on Twitter or something. With like three details changed. And we're like, that's a new one. Just kidding. No, it's the same as the old one. So this version of the story that you heard at the top of the show it can be linked back to a Twitter user. Really? Jackass, Jackass. And she wanted to share a story about an STD that one of her friends had caught from a Tinder date. No. Ew. I didn't think dead people could use Twitter. Wait, Tinder. What? Wait, either. <laughs> no dead people are using Twitter. Okay, maybe I've misunderstood the crux of this legend. Explain. <laughs> so it was a long Twitter thread as they go. And at the end it says... She has fucking maggots growing in her throat. I know this girl. This is not an urban legend. So the doctor asks how many people she's having sex with. And she tells him only her boyfriend. She is told by the doctor that her boyfriend is either having sex with animals or with dead people. And guess where her boyfriend works? Slaughterhouse. Morgue. Okay, so I was going for both, but I guess we're making a clear choice here. Fine. Fine. (laughs) Now, of course, she later admitted that she thinks the person who told her the story in the first place maybe got it from a friend. Of a friend. Of a friend. Of a friend. Yes. So, wait. First of all, I have a really big question before we go any further. Yes. So, you can say things on Twitter that aren't true? No. It's all true. (laughs) All of it. It's your truth, Sam. (laughs) Okay. So, Twitter is the place for your truth. Got it. Moving on, now that I've reevaluated my view on politics, her friend has maggots growing in her throat from the STD? That she got. From the morgue boyfriend. That, yes. That she met on t- Tinder. Yes. Okay. Ew. I'm going to say ew so many times. <laughs> on this episode, the E does not stand for explicit. It, it stands, stands for, for ew. Which is what I call my outline for this episode. <laughs> now, it has recently popped up in many countries, like making the news, such as in Norway. Mm-hmm. And in Malta. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the recent resurgence might be related to the resurgence of like dating apps and Tinder, etc. Okay. Because there was a version circulating in like 2009. And it has your more classic one night stand folly fodder. Okay. You so know, this is a 21st century update. Well, 2009 is also the 21st century. <laughs> this is one. Okay. Yeah. I can't even come up with a clever name for the teens, so <laughs> fine. But this is more of like, you're going on spring break. The original. So it's like, oh, you're going out to Jamaica or Florida or et cetera. The place where bad decisions are born. You're going to experience your own self-discovery <laughs> and decisions? make your bad decisions. Got it. In this version of the story, 
there might not just be the necrophilia, but also some cannibalism. Why? Well, is, the, is that not enough? The unsuspecting girl comes down with some kind of puzzling medical condition, a fungus or lesions or sores, after having some sort of sexual encounter with a young man. Mm-hmm. Who apparently doesn't merely have sex with the corpses, but actually eats them as well. And how do they determine this? You get it from eating people? Exactly. Fun. So here's one version. So, this girl goes to Panama City, Florida for vacation. She meets a guy and they kiss. He then asks her if she wants to go on a date, but she says no because she's going home soon. Now, a couple weeks later, she goes to the doctor because she has sores on her mouth and thinks it's an STD. The doctor says it's not an STD, it's a bacterial infection caused from eating decaying flesh. The girl gives the doctor the guy's contact information. Which she has, even though she didn't go on the date. And the doctor calls the Florida police and the police check the guy and he is eating two girls that he has killed. Okay, so many themes. That's a fun one because it has that mist yeah, like the near miss yes. thing. So common in urban legends. Right. And then she's still punished, though, for yes. kissing him. Yes. Which, you know this is the junior high version and it's oral sex and other tellings. You know this. Oh, right. Of Clearly. Course. Yeah. Well, this one, I think it's even like you said, it's like she's getting punished just for like making out with a dude at the bar. Terrible. Which is the like most innocuous thing you can do on spring break. <laughs> <laughs> Other than a crossword puzzle, but, you know, we don't get to tell stories about that. <laughs> well, let me tell you a story Tell about me a story. My crossword, I finished a bunch on the plane. I know, I helped. <laughs> We're so exciting. <laughs> and that's why we don't do episodes on crossword puzzles. Except for our episode on the dictionary, never mind. Okay, well, we know, never say never. But that was full of murder and madness and deceit and curse words. I mean... The dictionary is not going to sell itself, Jacob. (laughs) But it it is an interesting point that the person that gets punished for this is not like the person doing anything wrong per se, other than breaking that like cardinal terrible thing you could do in horror movies slash urban legends and have sex. Right. So in the spring break version... She's also, like, very quick to alert the authorities, which is, like, makes her the kind of the Good Samaritan thing we've got going. And the authorities are very quick to go check him out. Don't we wish that was the case all the time? I mean, (laughs) but in the more modern version, I don't know what recourse she has. And I don't think that, like, can, is there anywhere she can go for help at this point? Or is she just going to have maggots forever? It's a story. (laughs) What? It's just a story, Sam. You just take some medicine. <laughs> Fine, doctor. We talked about myiasis. All kinds of myiasis. I don't know what that means. It's the worms, the worms and the maggots. Okay. We talked about that in the spider I episode. I blocked it out. I, I blocked it out. I know you did. Okay. Ew. So the oldest online version that can be tracked down is from an online discussion board in 1998 by Oysten Skudenberg that was called The Bad Date. So, boy breaks up with girl, who, in her despair, picks up a man at a bar, comes home with him, and has casual, unprotected sex. After some days, she experiences bad itch in her crotch. The girl goes to a medical doctor, which, upon examining her, looks very serious and concerned, but says nothing. 
but gives her an appointment with a specialist. So the girl goes off to the specialist, and they examine the girl and turns very grave. Like that wordplay there? I like the wordplay and the lack of articles. (laughs) Makes some notes and tells her that she will have the results of the test in a week. The bewildered girl goes home. The next Still week, itching, by yeah, the way. Mm-hmm. Next week, the police turn up on her doorstep to question her. When she asks why, they explain that the police are routinely contacted by doctors in every case of corpse worm. Routinely. Apparently, it's comma. <laughs> it has a name. No. So did she weaken at Bernie's, that shit? Or did she catch it from him? <laughs> Caught it from him. All right, fine. The random <laughs> hookup. But she has another classic kind of storytelling device of the misses, like of the delayed diagnoses or yeah, like revelation mm-hmm. to build suspense, to build drama on your online discussion board. <laughs> uh, but it is interesting. This came out in the 90s and it very explicitly says she has unprotected sex. Mm-hmm. Right. We were hugely concerned with protection in the 90s because that's when safe sex campaigns were going on. And the aftermath of the HIV AIDS crisis. Definitely. So unprotected sex, you get corpse worm. So what is being alluded to in all of these stories oh, is that... There's some necrophilia going there's on. There's necrophilia. It's definitely necrophilia. Maybe a little cannibalism. Mostly necrophilia. Mostly necrophilia. And in the story, it's interesting because she's having this like brush with death mm-hmm. from having this kind of unprotected sex... Right. And it could be AIDS, could be HIV, but she's literally having a breast with death. Right. Yeah. Gross. I do. Uh, it's like this theory that death is contagious. By coming in contact with it, you'll somehow have some bad juju. It's more than juju if it itches. <laughs> yes, you're right. Even JJ has some bad juju. <laughs> bad juju. <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about necrophilia yay it's the word of the week word of the day what is it in bb's playhouse <laughs> i'm not gonna scream every time i say <laughs> necrophilia i am ew now so of course necrophilia is sexual gratification by having sex with the dead yeah we'll go into the details so it's one of the most weird bizarre revolting abnormal perverse Forms of sensuality and sexuality that exist among humanity. Without a doubt. No one can argue that. No, that's not something you were allowed even on a third date. Like, that, Dan Savage is not going to, like, excuse you. <laughs> so, technically, necrophilia is a paraphilic disorder. Oh, a disorder. Oh, oh, yes. Interesting. I thought that we were, like, patted paraphilias on the head and told them they were fine. Well, so there's a difference between the two. Okay. So one can have a paraphilia. So that can be defined as any intense and persistent sexual interest other than in genital stimulation or preparatory fondling with phenotypically normal consenting adult human partners. Okay, so anything weird. And I don't want to say weird. Like, that sounds like negative. Because the paraphilia is not necessarily a problem. Okay, so like, what is an example of a non-problem paraphilia? A shoe fetish. Like lunars. Lunars. People who are into balloons. People that are into balloons. That's a paraphilia. And there's nothing wrong with that. You balloon yourself. You go pop some balloons and get off and you enjoy your life. Yay. That is fine. (laughs) Now, when it becomes a disorder. Where is that line? That's the line. That's the problem. 
So paraphilic disorder is a recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasy urge or behavior that's distressing or disabling that involves inanimate objects, children, non-consenting adults, suffering humiliation to oneself or the partner with potential to cause harm. Okay, it's a pretty clear line. I actually think that's a very good distinction. I sometimes find that the line between disorder and irregularity is blurred in psychology. Well, I'll always tell students and people that the easiest way to think of it is it becomes a disorder when it affects your life in a negative way. Okay. Or the lives of others. Or the lives of others. Yeah, no, definitely. So, you know, this gets into, of course, necrophilia, pedophilia. Like rape fantasy. But rape fantasy, not rape fantasy. Rape, actual because rape. Because you can have rape fantasy. Yeah. And you could be... I was trying to think of a good way to say it. Yeah. Like, that put it in the realm of sexuality, because to me, that seems like something outside of sexuality. Well, so that's that's a great thing to look at, like, the line. And like you mentioned Dan Savage, and he always says that a lot of people will call this, like, a ravishment fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, a, a healthy rape fantasy. And so it crosses that line when someone wants to go out and rape somebody. Okay. You know, against their will. To where if it's a perfectly consensual fantasy situation where everyone is consenting, it's planned out, and it's okay, then that is not crossing that line to disorder. So the disordered things are, like, things you can be prosecuted for almost. No, not necessarily, but most of the things that you can be prosecuted for count under that line. So these paraphilic disorders can be seen alone or in combination with other things. You know, of course, we're talking about necrophilia chiefly. And that could be seen by itself or associated with like sadism or cannibalism or vampirism or necrophagia. What's that? Where you eat the flesh of the dead. Yuck. I didn't mean to ask that. I'm sorry. <laughs> or necrozoophilia. Is that dead animals? Of course. Matt. Of course. You say of course. Like, no. It's Latin. It's of course. A horse is a horse. Of course. Of course. And if it's dead, even better. Poems for necrosophiliacs. Oh, well, look at that. Just making the world better. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) Pretty sure I'm helping no one. So a lot of times people with paraphilic disorders have this impaired or even non-existent capacity to have like an emotional, sexually intimate relationship with another consenting partner. Okay. And they might have other aspects of their personal and emotional adjustment impaired as well. So this is just like a manifestation of problems that exist within someone already? Well, so there are lots of theories going around, of course, in psychological text and literature about you know what causes a paraphilia. I know this was a really good kind of little summary. Saying that the pattern of disturbed erotic arousal is usually fairly well developed before puberty. Mm-hmm. And at least three processes are involved. Anxiety or emotional trauma that interferes with normal psychosexual development. So the standard pattern of arousal is replaced by another pattern. Something through early exposure to highly charged sexual experiences that reinforces the person's experience of sexual pleasure. And then that pattern of sexual arousal is often acquires a symbolic and conditioning element. A fetish symbolizing the object of arousal. And this may be chosen because it's like accidentally associated with this kind of like excitement or arousal or desire idea. And that goes for paraphilias and paraphilic disorders? Correct. But the paraphilic disorders are more kind of intense. Okay. 
So like psychoanalysts who like to look at, you know, emotional history, like to say it's related to unresolved and misdirected hostility to where behaviorists say that paraphilias are learned behaviors. But both emphasize the importance of some kind of traumatic event that sidetracks the normal kind of development of sexual arousal. Yeah, I can see Freud saying that. Makes sense. He's the psychoanalyst camp, correct? And then your behavior is really the people who watch and observe and believe that all behavior is learned. So this kind of unconscious mental switch of negative to positive can be called the opponent process theory. Tell me more. Well, so it seems kind of like a psychological survival mechanism that rather than caving in under this negative stress, the person turns it into like an advantage. So someone might... I, initially be terrified of something but it can ultimately emerge as like a compelling source of pleasure through some kind of twist in the brain wiring basically so like something scary like a snake or whatever snakes are scary or a dead body no i'm not talking i don't want to talk about it till i have to talk about it (laughs) let's be general like a snake you see a snake and you're like horrified but also curious and then excited And then you're only excited. In a way. Because something, a switch flips. Right. And you go over some kind of threshold and it changes your neuro response. Yeah. Okay. So there's one great quote that I read by Brill and it said, The destruction of the dams of shame, disgust, and morality, which must take place in the erection of necrophilia, requires more psychic labor than in the construction of any other perversion. So we begin to see, like, people acknowledge that necrophilia exists, especially in the realm of the legal system, around 1933. But it's much older than that. (laughs) It is much older than that, but it's the first time we've ever felt comfortable even acknowledging that it could happen in any official document. (laughs) Right. And this is because of the writings of Dr. Richard Fairhair von Kraft Ebbing. That's a fancy name. It is a fancy, fancy name. And he wrote Psychopathia Sexualis, which was first published in Germany in 1882, but translated into English a whole heck of a lot later. The relationship between United States abuse of corpse laws, which is what you'll often see them called, and the book itself is not purely cause and effect, but he was one of the first like medical authorities to articulate necrophilia as a sexual pathology. And it became a human act that could be recognized by the law because it was recognized by medicine. It was not just some weird It's like a fluke. one-off yes. kind of thing. Like, this has been written down. It's like the equivalent of like a DSM now. You right. Everyone goes and looks at the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for very legal reasons. Right. A lot. So he devotes a number of pages in his book to what he terms mutilation of corpses and examines some infamous cases in European history. What Kraft Ebbing created with Psychopathia Sexualis was an index of reported sexual abuse, abuses of human corpse, and remedies sought by local legal authorities. Now, around the turn of the 19th century, sexologists were studying the accounts of confessed necrophiles. Kraft Ebbing did not limit himself to necrophilia. He wrote about all kinds of weirdness. Sorry, keep doing that. But in light of the necrophilia thing, hard not to. But he, like, showed very little compassion, comparatively, for necrophiles. Uh, understandable. Yeah. So you're saying he was, he was kind of compassionate about people that were into... Balloons! BDSM. Yeah. But he was like, nah. 
This is a line too far. He says, This horrible kind of sexual indulgence is so monstrous that the presumption of psychopathic state is, under all circumstances, justified. He believed that anyone that would do this had to be mentally unstable. He believed also that it was related to a mental incapacity and that it was symptomatic of not being a functional person. And really the current ideas about necrophilias have not strayed that far off. And we'll talk some more about that later. But it's it's so true that necrophiliacs just transgress against one of the strongest social boundaries in existence. That separating the dead from the living. This almost makes them unique against a lot of the other kind of paraphilic disorders. Because in a way they're... Not ordinary humans, laws, taboos, all of the social structure that's set up just doesn't apply to them. There's really not someone in their corner rooting for them. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at different types of necrophiliacs. So this is like a psychological write-up kind of like classification system. Right. So there are a few different classification systems. And I thought for the purpose of this show... This 10-point classification system would be the best to talk about. Is it like really, really going to cover our bases here? It really breaks it down. You've got okay. the few that you kind of, in a way, could be on their side to where it goes all the way down to Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> yeah. So class one, these are the role players. They don't have sex with dead bodies, but get arousal from having sex with a living person pretending to be dead. Okay, that seems like relatively harmless as long as both people are in on it. As long as it's not like a gateway drug, it feels very much like a gateway drug. But it definitely is not. It's not as not. It's one of those things like if everyone's consenting and into it and they're adults, it's okay. (laughs) So some may utilize like a resurrection fantasy where the lover brings the dead partner to life through sexual activity. Okay, well, that's just fairy tales. Magic penis. So yeah, that's just fairy tales. That's <laughs> well, you know, it's like vampire-y too, I guess. But that motif, my God, you couldn't grow up seeing someone woken from being dead by a kiss and not have that somewhere in your subconscious. Now, what you do with it's gonna be a little different, I assume. <laughs> but I can see that in our Western culture zeitgeist, I guess. A lot of times there's like kind of vampiric fantasy to go along with this. Okay, and Twilight's to blame. Of course. <laughs> or Anne Rice. Yeah. Well, depending on how old you are. Anne Rice is my homegirl. Shut up. <laughs> but, you know, usually there's, you know, some kind of role-playing element to it. So, class two is really interesting. These are the romantic necrophiles. So, they have very mild necrophilic tendencies. They're normally bereaved people who cannot bear separation from their loved ones. So I would also call this the Rose for Emily. This is the Rose for Emily story, yes. Which, if you have not read that Faulkner short story... Pause, go read it now. It's, it's, it's perfect bedtime reading. It's like 12 pages long. It's so good to read right before you go to bed. You should read that right before you go to bed, and then contemplate the collective we. As in that story, the person does not seem to agree that the loved ones died, and they may mummify their loved one's body and may even continue to relate sexually to them as they did in life, or just kind of keep them in the bed and sleep with them. Like, sleep, sleep. Romantic. Now, what could be more romantic than William Faulkner's story, A Rose for Emily? Nothing. How about if a princess did it? Oh, Snow White? (laughs) Close. (laughs) 
So this is the story of Princess Cristina Churvuzio di Belgio Oso. Now, female necrophiles are decidedly few and far between, but this case emerged in 1848. Now, this is a royal lady who hung on to the corpse of her lover after he died for a minute or two. That's romantic. It's romantic. So she was a princess who had become a sweetheart of the Paris intellectual set and was friends with Chopin, Liszt, Victor Hugo, Alexandre Dumas, etc. Very literati. She was known as a revolutionary in her time. She wrote a book of woman's condition and of their future in 1866. She's a proto-feminist, but she was also a little neurotic and may have suffered from epilepsy. And some sexologists suggest that epilepsy can have a correlation to necrophilia. I mean, if you have some sort of literally physical brain deformity, which is a lot of times what like temporal epilepsy, things like that, then it can also mess with other functions of your brain. So I think that's probably a leap. More like psychological disorders in general are more common in people with epilepsy, certain types. So after the Italian Revolution of 1848, she fled her home but left behind the body of her 27-year-old lover, Giatono Stesi, who had died of tuberculosis earlier that year. He was found completely preserved, dressed from head to toe in black. The coffin in which he had been supposedly buried was dug up and found to only contain a log. Oh, no. It is believed that Stesi had died suddenly of a lung hemorrhage in the presence of the terrified princess in her house in Milan. And from there... She had his newly embalmed body transferred to a vault on her estate. Now, no one's really sure how his corpse ended up in her cupboard. But after fleeing the country, she ended up in Turkey, living in a tent. And eventually she returned to Italy, where she died in 1871. That's so romantic. Princesses. (laughs) Fairy tales. Cupboards. (laughs) So our next class of necrophile is the necrophilic fantasizer so they may visit cemeteries and funeral parlors often merely for the sight of dead bodies that gives them erotic pleasure some may like to have sex in the presence of a coffin or can even be found masturbating during funeral sermons or dirges as they sit in a crowd of mourners that's just bad manners they did have a problem with this in the paris morgue and this is where you can like Get your little ticket and go down and see all the dead bodies. Of course. And what it else attracted the, the audience. An unintended audience. <laughs> so those that have never touched the dead but find sexual gratification from just looking at them have been labeled platonic necrophiles. It was platonic, I swear. <laughs> and now there's also a term that I think was coined by Freud, taphophilia. Which is people that get aroused from funerals. Like, the church thing is so hard for me to get over. Like, that, the setting is so somber. I cannot <laughs> make me clutch my pearls. Oh, my. So, I think that this group here fits into this category. But they may also have a, a, a place later in our list. Okay, what's that? So, this is the Hickory Street Four. This is another thing that happened 200 years ago? No, it happened in 2013. Okay. So, on Friday, January 11th of 2013, Bethany McKee's father, 
a resident of Shorewood, Illinois, reported to police that his daughter had just called him with an unusual request. Oh, no. She and her friends needed some help disposing of two dead bodies. Oh, no. So the Joliet police stormed into the Massaro home and found two of the original partygoers, Minder and Landerman, still partying. They were drunk. They were doing cocaine, playing video games, the huge. As you do. Now, Eric Glover and Terrence Rankin were also in the house, but they were dead. Dead. So they'd been strangled to death. And a recorded interview with Beth McKee, age 20, which lasted hours, was played before a packed courtroom in Will County. Now, on tape, McKee stated that she had talked about killing the men jokingly. Upon first seeing them, she did not realize they were dead, but the two 20-year-old men had been strangled. She stated that the bodies were stacked on top of each other when she first saw them. Now, eventually, she pinned the murders, which took place with her 15-month-old daughter in the house. Oh, God. And a friend's father asleep downstairs on Joshua Minor, who's 26. And she broke down near the end of her interview with the two police officers and said the whole thing was his idea. Convenient. She, mm-hmm, she said that Minor was crazy and she was fearful of what might happen to her if she did not play along. McKee admitted that she had used money stolen from the victims to buy gasoline and cigarettes and left the scene without notifying police. She stated that she called her father to ask if he would help her dispose of the bodies and he called the police instead of helping her. She said the men were attacked because they hit on her and her friend, Elisa Massaro, who was also 20. However, prosecutors said that the group was motivated by their need for money. Minor admitted that he lured the victims to the location. This is Joshua Minor, whose idea it all was. And the location was Elisa Massaro's father's home by giving them the impression that they would be allowed to have sex with the two girls. Once in the house, Minor, a crazy mastermind, and his accomplice, Landerman strangled the victims to death. He told police that Elisa had fantasized about having sex with a dead body. He said instead of actually copulating with a corpse, the pair of men were laid out side by side, covered with a sheet, and he and Elisa had sex on top of them. Holy fuck. Oh my God. Now, McKee blamed her father for alerting the authorities and for her involvement in the murders in the first place. Always dad's fault. Definitely the parents. She said it was his fault in the first place. He's the one who kept kicking me out. Okay, yeah, okay. Always nice to see someone take responsibility for their own actions. So, McKee, Minor, Crazy Mastermind, Massaro, Elisa Massaro, his sex partner, and his accomplice, Adam Landerman, were all charged. Interestingly, Landerman's father was a sergeant with the Joliet Police Department. Oh, no. However... He was eventually sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. The only one that was not sentenced to life in prison was Elisa Massaro, who took a plea deal and got a 10-year sentence for robbery and failure to report a homicidal death, and she testified against the others. McKee said that she took her daughters downstairs and sat on the floor in a small room after Minor and Landerman began to attack the two men upstairs. Soon she left the house, dropped the daughter off with a friend, bought some stuff, and returned to find the bodies. Now, CPS said that they were not notified that the 15-month-old daughter was in danger, even though McKee's statement made it very clear that the child was in the home at the time of the murders. McKee told police that she later kicked one of the bodies at Miner's urging. She said she heard the others beating one of the bodies in the head with a heavy liquor bottle and yelling racial epithets like, you should be picking cotton, and then this wouldn't have happened. Oh, 
God. It's awful. It's like, it gets you? more awful every sentence. And it's like, could it be worse? Yes. Uh, yes. Let's keep getting worse. She said all four of them left, bought cocaine, and came back to the house. McKee said she eventually passed out and woke up to find Rankin's and Glover's body covered and lying beside each other. She said Minor and Masaro talked about having sex on the bodies, but she wasn't sure if they went through with it. Minor also suggested that he would like to have one of the victim's faces cut off to wear like a mask, a la Leatherface. So they were on PCP, too. Something. Eventually, she said that Landerman brought in tools to the house to help dispose of the bodies. And those tools included a propane torch, shears, knives, scissors, and a hacksaw. Yeah. So there's they go they go on the list. Oh yeah. They go in this typology somewhere, maybe here, but they killed him. So I don't know. It's probably a combination of the two, and you can't be too strict with things like this. But they're definitely on purpose having sex near the corpse and getting off on it. Yeah. So class four necrophiles are your tactile necrophiles. So they enjoy touching, stroking parts of the dead body, such as genitalia or breast, or maybe even licking them. Ew. Some may even take up jobs as mortuary attendants or some other job dealing with the dead because they want to be near dead bodies. Now, a classic example of this is a medical student who gets aroused while dissecting a cadaver. That sounds so made up. I know. It sounds like such a urban legend in and mm-hmm. of itself. But, like, I mean, I've obviously, like, dissected a cadaver and cannot imagine anything. More repulsive. Yes. Like, I mean, you've been to the cadaver It was lab. awful. It's I did terrible. it because I love you. <laughs> you didn't have to go. It was family day. It Don't was a good say day. because you love me. It sounds like we're class three necrophiles. We're not. It was family day. It and was. My mom was like, this is so cool. And I was like, okay, I see where I get it from. All right. <laughs> it's all making sense. No, she's like, oh my God, I'm going to touch it. She did. She wanted to touch it. She's, she's, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to stay over here and hold my purse. Y'all nasty. But just the smell of the formaldehyde alone is enough to kill a boner. <laughs> no. From Outhide is a boner killer. It's true. It's awful. So your next class are your class five, and this is your fetishistic necrophiles. So they don't engage in any kind of copulatory activity with the dead. Instead, if they come across a dead body, and if chance arose, they may cut off a portion of it to keep. They may, like, put it in their pocket or make an amulet. <laughs> This makes my picking up rocks everywhere I go compulsion seem so normal. So the biggest difference, what separates these is that they preserve a part of this dead body. And sometimes this can be kind of related to your class two necrophiles, except they're keeping like a little piece. And for example, there was a story, and we're going way back in time, from Martin Schrieg's Spermatologia, which is from the 1700s, described the case of a Belgian lady who had secretly cut off the penis of her husband when he died and treasured it as a sacred relic in a silver casket. So do they have to get sexual gratification from it or do they just keep it? Sexual gratification. Okay. Did you do that for me? No. Okay. You can have that. I guess I'll throw this casket away. <laughs> no, I want the casket. That's hilarious. So she eventually powdered it and found it an efficacious medicine for herself and others. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. 
What does that mean? Efficacious medicine. She powdered it. She. Oh, I thought she meant she like got the powder puff. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was an even earlier story about a lady in the French court who had embalmed and perfumed the genital organs of her dead husband, also preserving them in a golden casket. Well, she liked him better, first of all, Apparently. clearly. Also, where's the penis casket maker? What does his sign look like? Uh, I'm sure there's an Etsy page. Ah, I love people who craft with it. I bedazzle that penis casket. <laughs> oh, it's so terrible. So, you know, there's like an urban legend that Napoleon's penis is floating around somewhere. Yes, there is. It's a great urban legend. Maybe one day. <laughs> I mean, there is a penis that is preserved that is said to be Napoleon's. Right. It's just no one, like, it exists. But no one knows for sure. Exactly. If it was actually It's not like just an urban legend. It's more like. So maybe one day we'll figure that out for you. We'll we'll see. Maybe one day all penis caskets all the time. Don't put it past us. So this guy, again, probably ticks multiple boxes on this list. But let's talk about him here. He was described by Kraft Ebbing, our preeminent psychopathia sexualis scholar, as a moron, void of any moral sense. His name was Victor Ardenson, and he had earned the nickname the Vampire of Mouy, which is in France, uh, because of his predilection for sucking on his victim's body parts. His case came to light when he was arrested in 1901 for robbing graves and mutilating corpses, over 100 allegedly. But he was a grave digger by occupation. And this presented him with lots of opportunities to indulge in his pastime of choice. Now, unlike other necrophiles, he was picky. He only liked young dead women and had to have been attractive in life to him. William Steckel reported that Ardenson admitted that he drank his own semen after masturbation because it would have been too bad to have it go to waste. Precious bodily fluids. Yes. He was often rejected, and in compensation, he masturbated as he watched women urinate. Uh, he admitted his inadequacies with women had led him to attempt to pay for sex a few times, but it was not fulfilling. Um, and he also worked as a male prostitute, providing fellatio services for those men willing to pay him to do this. He also claimed to have had sex with his mother's corpse after she died. But Steckel believed that this was fantasy. Very psycho of him. <laughs> Which Ed Gein probably falls in here. Oh, or definitely. Your, your fetishistic. Oh, yes. Yeah, like keeping just little parts. Yeah. Now, his method of assault, this is a quote from a book called The Pleasure's All Mine, which is all about various paraphilias, which has an entire chapter on necrophilia. If you want to go check that out and then use a toothbrush to clean your brain. His method of assault on female bodies, whether dead or alive, was to first suck their breast and then perform cunnilingus on them. Albert Mole identified this behavior as passivism, a behavior typified in a certain self-disregarding person. Ardenson spent the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital in France. Now, in addition to this profile we have here of his behavior I and mean, like what kind of person he was, there are some interesting details about his case. He would bring bodies home with him. He slept next to a corpse and engaged with in intercourse with it. And he also kept the skull of a 13-year-old girl nearby him pretty much all the time. And he would kiss it and he would call it my bride. And he confessed that when he brought these corpses home, he would try to interact with them as if they were alive. He would talk to them and feel like a genuine sense of rejection when they did not acknowledge him 
back. So this guy's got all kinds of problems. Oh, yeah. All the boxes. Checking all the boxes. But because of his, his skull bride. Skull bride. I put him here. Well, so our next one, the classics, is necromutilomania. So these are individuals who do not necessarily engage in sexual intercourse with the dead. However, their erotic pleasure comes from the mutilating of the dead body and masturbating simultaneously. In some cases, the offender may also have a little necrocannibalism as well. Might try to cook a little. Might cook a little. That's an American Psycho reference. So one researcher described someone that kind of just fantasized in this way. They would fantasize killing a woman, cutting her up, removing her organs, and then masturbating while immersing his hand in the blood of the corpse. And now we'll go into a classic case of this later on. So the next one is our class seven opportunistic necrophiles. So these people are normally pretty content having sex with living people. But if the opportunity arose, they would say you No, (laughs) they would not say you would not say you. Okay. So for one example, a 37-year-old single white male who was dating a 49-year-old woman and was having kind of a normal relationship with her, sexual relationship, one day he accidentally shot her under the influence of alcohol. He panicked and tried to hide the dead body. But when he was hiding her body, he became sexually excited and had sex with the corpse and then disposed of it. I just like, that all seems so, whoops. Oopsie, I just I fell just in. don't buy it. I hope the police are keeping a close eye on this fellow. <laughs> you nasty. All right, so our next class, class eight, are our regular necrophiles. So that means there is a preference. Okay. This is where that is the preferred choice. So this is a line of demarcation, kind of a line in the sand. This is not just a hobby. This is becoming a career. Sure. <laughs> So these are people that would rather seek out a dead body to have sex with because they ha- get more pleasure than having sex with a live person. So this may resort to stealing dead bodies from mortuaries or graveyards for this purpose. Buckle up, buttercup. Remember how I said that female necrophiles are very uncommon? Yeah, like 90% of necrophiles are men. Well, in our opening salvo here we've got two i mean in addition to the women with the powder penis can- caskets don't forget the powder penis caskets i just, I just want a storefront sign like that's all i want anyway so this is a story about karen greenlee she was 22 years old when she went missing in 1979 along with a hearse that she drove for a mortuary where she was an apprentice embalmer Oh, it's not going to go well. It's not. So her family and those searching for her did not know that she was AWOL with her love object, a 33-year-old man's corpse. And she would remain missing with said corpse in said hearse for two days. And during this time, she was going to... Oh, no. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I don't know and neither do you. Like, you're sitting there being all smug. Like, oh, I totally know what she did with that dead body. No, you don't. No, no. We're going to have to let her explain it. Context clues. Something sexual. So after whatever that entailed, she attempted to overdose on codeine and Tylenol. But the police discovered her with a suicide note in the coffin with the dead man. So she was in the coffin. With him. Okay. Um, She was still alive, but she had confessed in writing to sexually violating corpses. In part, her letter read, why do I do it? Why, why? Fear of love, of relationships, 
No romance has ever hurt like this. It's the pits. I'm a morgue rat. This is my rat hole, perhaps my grave. I have had sex with the dead bodies of 20 to 40 men. It's an addiction. Oh my. Oh my. Fun fact, though, uh, necrophilia laws in California at this time were remarkably lax. Never fear, they were redone in 2004 and now kind of at least exist. So she was only charged with stealing the hearse and disrupting a funeral. She spent 11 days in jail and was fined $225. That's it? And she got two years probation and counseling. Now, the mother of the deceased did sue Greenlee for $1 million. However, they settled for $117,000. Now, she would normally just enter the funeral home where she worked at night, but she would break into other funeral homes if there were no satisfactory bodies. She was attracted to any male corpse aged around 20 to 40, that was not fat. This floors me. She's really weird. She's, line, right? It's like, that's your line? She, like, she didn't care how they died either. Like, the guy could have his face blown Bullshit. off. Bullshit. And she was, like, cool with it. And we're but still fat shaming. <laughs> but she's fat shaming. Like, I don't... This, like, really did blow my mind. Anyway. Stop fat shaming corpses. It's terrible, right? Now... At the age of 20, perhaps as a result of repeated childhood trauma, she came to regard herself as having died in spirit and started drinking heavily, avoiding living people, and enjoying the company of the dead only. She had very low self-esteem. The corpses gave her comfort as well as a sense of being able to touch and express herself to someone. Now, five years after this initial incident, she did this in-depth interview with Jim Morton, which he published under the title The Unrepentant Necrophile, an interview with Karen Greenlee. This is a trip. Most of this is her writing. I will let you know if it's not. She says, when I wrote that letter, her suicide note, I was listening to society. Everyone said necrophilia was wrong. So I must be doing something wrong. But the more people tried to convince me I was crazy, the more sure of my desires I became. Morton writes, The following interview was held in Karen's apartment, a small studio filled with books, necrophilic drawings, and satanic adornments. She explains herself. Before the trial, I had a boyfriend who found out about it, and he got mad and slapped me around. He said I wasn't even a woman, and I could go fuck my dead bodies. I was surprised he knew. Apparently, a lot of people knew, and I don't know how they knew. Corpse worm. Oh, God, Jacob. What? Like, would you be shocked if that came up? <laughs> no. Like, that's a twist. <laughs> no, I'm, like, after the week of research we did on this, the thing that, like, I was like, that is unbelievable, was the fat thing. It is crazy. <laughs> but you know, this reminds me of... Cotard syndrome, which we talked about, the living dead syndrome, where people oh, yeah. think they're dead. I can see that. So she continues on. With guys, they always felt like I went for the bodies because I was hard up. And if I went to bed with them, then that would change me. And they would be the one who would give me such satisfaction I wouldn't need those old corpses anymore. I've run into that a lot. But once you go dead? Did you never go back? Well, I, it applies if you're the one dying. True. People have this misconception that there has to be penetration for sexual gratification, which is bull. The most sensitive part of a woman is the front area anyway, which is what needs to be stimulated. Besides, there are different aspects of sexual expression, touchy-feely, 69, even holding hands. Oh, no. That body's just lying there, but it has what it takes to make me happy. The cold, the aura of 
death, the smell of death, the funereal surroundings, it all contributes. There's also this attraction to blood. When you're on top of a body, it tends to purge blood out of its mouth while you're making passionate love. You'd have to be there, I guess. Of course. Mm. (laughs) No. No, I don't. I don't have to be there. I'm sorry. Next time I audition for like a little theater production, this is going to be my model. <laughs> oh, this is it. This is it. All of you drama geeks, which I was one of, we were one of. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um, I, you know, I wish I'd done this piece yeah. and been kicked out of Catholic school. It'd be great. <laughs> you probably would have gone to film school if that had happened. So Morton interjects at this point, of course, with all the AIDS going around. And she says, oh, that's the reason I haven't tried anything lately. I'm sure I'd have found a way to get into one of those funeral homes by now. But the group I find attractive, young men in their 20s, they're the ones dying of AIDS. (sighs) This all really ties in with a legend. Right? But it's not an unwitting girl. Oh, no. Oh, no. So he says, when did you first become aware of your necrophilia? And she says, it's something I've been attracted to all my life. I used to hold funeral services for my pets when they died, which does not mean anything. I've done that shit. Whoa, getting a little defensive here. (laughs) I had a little pet graveyard. I lived in a small town, and the fireman's barbecue was next to the funeral home. And to go to the bathroom, you had to use the facilities in the funeral home. I'd find any excuse I could to go to the bathroom, and I'd take side trips and wander around the mortuary. It didn't scare you like the other kids, Morton asked. No, I loved it. I was real curious. Then he says, it must be frustrating when people say, we have a cure for you, or you've got to be more like us. And she says, it is. For a while, I found myself thinking, yeah, this isn't normal. Why can't I be like other people? Why doesn't the same pair of shoes fit me just right? I went through all that personal hell, and finally, I accepted myself and realized, that's just me. That's my nature. I might as well enjoy it. I'm miserable when I try to be something I'm not. And too bad. A lot of these people who are putting me down have hang-ups worse than I do. Or they do things that might be considered questionable by their peers. I had a gay friend who found out I was a necrophile and he said, you can go to hell for that. I love that she's like, (laughs) she's also gay shaming. (laughs) You can't be a homophobe and a necrophile. It is against the rules. Especially not one who's like, I've worked out my shit. I know what I like. Oh, oh, baby. So after 1979, when I was put on probation, part of the probation requirement was that I seek therapy. I had a really nice social worker. She was very cool, very non-judgmental. And the more I talked to these people, the more I realized necrophilia just makes sense for me. The reason I was having a problem with it was because I couldn't accept myself. I was still trying to live my life by other people's standards. To accept it was peace. These people who are always trying to change me only help me get myself more in touch with my feelings. I used to go from my therapist's office to the funeral home. It did not work, folks. Interesting. (laughs) She's a piece of work. So our next class of necrophiles are our homicidal necrophiles. I bet you could give us a big list. Would you like me to? Sure. Bullet points. Um, so... Gene, technically not a serial killer, probably does fall in this category because he did eventually murder to get two of the bodies that counts. Let's see. Bundy. Of course. See Bundy episode. Kemper. (sighs) Mother's head. Put her vocal cords down the garbage disposal. By the way, if you haven't seen Mindhunters yet. Pause, go watch it. We'll see you in 12 hours. It's worth it. Also good 
for before bedtime watching. Yeah, we're just we're just you know a sweet little bedtime story today. Um, let's see who else. Then of course Dahmer, who may be the king of the necrophiles. Like he he ch- literally checks all the boxes. He would eat him, right? He he was campbell he, he ate a little bit of him. He may have served him to other people. Tried to cook a little. He tried to cook a little. He pickled penises. He I mean Dahmer did everything. Yes, he had a penis caskets. He had a penis bucket. Oh. Well, look at that. You know, with that kind of volume. We're going to talk about Dahmer one day, I of promise. The of the amount of it is the, uh, the numerous oh, okay. nature right. of the peni. Sure. Yeah, I've never pluraled penis before. Uh, and then, you know, Gary Leon Ridgeway. So numerous of the, like, top tier. This is your... Lust murders. Yes, this is definitely your varsity level serial killer roster. And then your last class, class 10, are your exclusive necrophiles. And that is the rarest of rare. That is where they will only have sex with a dead body. And in the one of the largest surveys of these cases by Rosman and Resnick, where they looked at 122 cases, they could only find six cases to fit this class. So I can't talk about serial killers without thinking about detectives and the people that find them because for every bad guy there's got to be a good guy or i don't get to sleep at night hopefully hopefully i don't hopefully there's a good guy okay so this is from a paper by john troyer called abusive corpse a brief history and re-theorization of necrophilia laws in the united states and he begins his paper by discussing a wisconsin case that took place on september 2nd 2006 in caseville wisconsin Grant County Sheriff's Department dispatched officers to investigate an unoccupied suspicious vehicle near the St. Charles Cemetery. There they discovered 20-year-old twin brothers Nicholas and Alexander Grunke and their friend Dustin Radke, who was also 20 years old, had been digging into a grave of a recently deceased woman named Laura J. Tennyson. Miss Tennyson, also age 20, had died in a motorcycle accident a week earlier. Upon questioning by police, Alexander Grunke explained that the three men wanted to exhume this body so that Nicholas Grunke could have sexual intercourse with her at a pre-selected location behind his house. Before going to the St. Charles Cemetery that night, the men had stopped off at a nearby Walmart and purchased... Condoms. Condoms. Because they don't want to get corpse worms. Exactly. So that's like intent. Yes. Intent. So they must have been charged heavily with intent. I mean, there's like, there's thought, there's premeditation. Conspiracy. Yeah. Three of them, technically, right? Well, they were charged with damage to cemetery property, attempted criminal damage of private property, and third degree sexual assault. But Miss. Tennyson's body was never removed because it was in a vault, so poor planning on their part. And the counsel for the defendant put forward an argument that these men could not be charged with attempted sexual assault because the language of the statute prohibiting sexual assault did not include language specifically addressing deceased person's remains. So a lot of times in these cases, the problem is that once you're dead, you're no longer person. Right. So you're a thing. You're someone's property. Yeah, so in this case, whose property, she was like... Her her, parents. Her parents' property. Right. So if they'd removed it... Theft? Theft of her parents' property. Right. Interesting. Interesting, indeed. Nicholas Grunke, Alexander Grunke, and Dustin Radke were charged with the remaining illegal acts, namely damage to cemetery property and attempted theft of movable property, which now included 
her corpse. Now, many people were shocked by this. Now, after the judge's ruling, the Wisconsin State Senator Dale Schultz became a very vocal advocate of changing the law because the cemetery was in his district. Senator Schultz released a press statement that said, You'd think in a state which unfortunately has seen the likes of Ed Gein and Jeffrey Dahmer, we would have addressed this issue long ago. It's <laughs> a good point. It's a good point. 40 of 50 states have laws that address the crime of necrophilia. Only four states, Arizona, Georgia, Hawaii, and Rhode Island, explicitly use the word necrophilia. Because they always use this kind of like innuendo, almost. Like we have to think about when the laws are it. written, too. That's probably part of it. Right. So, like, for example, in Massachusetts, the statute is crimes against chastity, morality, decency, and good order. Well, we know about Massachusetts and their bestiality <laughs> all those laws back in the day. Mississippi bars unnatural intercourse, which can be applied to any deviant sexual behavior that may or may not include necrophilia. Now, there are nine U.S. states that don't have any real laws to address necrophilia. Illinois, Kansas, Louisiana, Ooh. Nebraska, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Vermont, and Wisconsin. Now, there are three main categories that these laws do fall into. There are abusive corpse laws, necrophilia laws that explicitly prohibit sex with a dead body, and unnatural acts or crimes against nature laws. Let's look at some. So the abuse of corpse law, the example is Ohio, and this is the statute. No person, except as authorized by law, shall treat human corpses in a way that the person knows would outrage reasonable family sensibilities. Portion B. No person, except as authorized by law, shall treat a human corpse in a way that would outrage reasonable community sensibilities. Section C. Whoever violates Division A is guilty of a misdemeanor of the second degree. Whoever violates Section B is guilty of gross abuse of corpse, a felony of the fifth degree. That's interesting. Okay, so what is the, the line between A and B? If you outrage the family, misdemeanor. You outrage the community, felony. So I think that this might have to do with like burial practices or medical practices that might be done in kind of good faith that may not go well with the family. So, like, if you were to do an autopsy, an unauthorized autopsy... On, like, a Jane Doe that comes in or whatever. Right. Or, like, you know, like, some kind of funerary practice, and then later you find out they're Orthodox Jewish, and you did a complete embalming on them. Or something... I think that's the line that they're talking about. I think you're probably right. But it just shows how wonky the language that's used in these statutes can be. Right. Community and family sensibilities. Necrophilia laws are laws which specifically prohibit sexual contact with a dead body. Now, you might think that these are very straightforward. Sounds basic. But they're not, uh, and they can vary widely from state to state. For example, in Minnesota, the statute is listed as bestiality. Whoever carnally knows a dead body or an animal or a bird, is guilty of bestiality. So fish are left out of this, what you're telling me. I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> Aren't fish animals? Aren't birds, birds animals? I don't know. And the lion is. The lion is an animal. <laughs> if knowingly done in the presence of another person, 
the person may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than one year or payment of a fine of not more than $3,000 or both. Okay. So we'd have to prove that they actually had sexual intercourse. In it, a very, in a legal sense, a very specific thing. They mean penis and vagina sex. Okay. That's kind of what's established by precedent. But they said no birds. Right. If I'm a defense attorney, I'm very excited because the cloaca is not a vagina. Loophole. Some kind of hole. Oh, Mysterious no. hole. You're so wrong. Yeah, no. And thanks for joining us. <laughs> see you next episode. <laughs> but you can see how many acts might fall out of the scope of this statute. And then another thing you may have noticed is this lack of clarity surrounding the reason that a corpse is included with animals and birds as a beast. This is a legal artifact. So this would have, back in the day, been part of a sodomy statute. Wonderful. Any weird sex, they say, and they mean weird in a bad way. Well, that's just disappointing. Eventually, it was cordoned off and kind of made its own thing, which left these like weird bird-beast corpse leftovers and we had to do something with them so they all got rolled into one statute and now we have bestiality also means having sex with a dead body in minnesota but then you have laws like nevada's sexual penetration of a dead human body unlawful act penalty a person who commits sexual penetration on a dead body of a human being is guilty of a category a felony and shall be punished by imprisonment in the state prison for life with the possibility of parole, with eligibility for parole beginning when a minimum of five years has been served, and shall be further punished by a fine of not more than $20,000. Minimum five-year sentence in Nevada for necrophilia. That's insane compared to, like, any of the others, really. <laughs> you have to wonder what set that off. I feel like there's a story behind I know. it. I think that about so many laws. So they actually go so far as to like list the specific sex acts that can't be done and blah, blah, blah. It's a very thorough statute and probably one of the best written and harshest of these kind of laws. Now, the final one are the crimes against nature, which is just such a broad and sprawling category that it must be broken down just a tad bit. So Idaho's statute states crimes against nature. Punishment. Every person who is guilty of the infamous crime against nature committed with mankind or with any animal is punishable by imprisonment in the state prison for no less than five years. Infamous crime against nature. So ambiguous. So ambiguous. And then you get into like, is a corpse mankind or is only a living person mankind? And so you see that as soon as you die, you become very legally ambiguous. (laughs) No, it's true, and and it just shows how uncomfortable we are as a society with dead bodies in general. We can't even, like, define it in law. Only in Nevada, apparently. (laughs) Now, of course, while the legal status kind of came about with Kraft Ebbing defining it within his book, that helped, you know, give people kind of lines to draw and made it, you know, like a legal thing. Necrophilia has been around for... A lot longer, of course. Now, according to Herodotus, the ancient Egyptians would take precautions against necrophilia by prohibiting the corpses of the wives of men of rank from being delivered immediately to the embalmers. He said, the wives of distinguished men, they do not give for embalmment right away. 
Only when they've been dead three or four days do they hand them over to the embalmers to prevent them from copulating with these women. Now, according to legend, King Herod had sex with his wife, Marianne, for seven years after he killed her. Now, of course, King Herod was cast as the big baddie baby eater from the New Testament, as we talked about on our Boogeyman episode. So you can take that one with a big old grain of salt. Now, there are similar legends about King Waldemir and Charlemagne. There is an account of a Corinthian tyrant, Periander, in the 7th century, who murdered and had sex with his wife. And Herodotus wrote, Periander baked his bread in a cold oven. Hell of a euphemism there, sir. Right? But there's really a lack of any kind of solid evidence from back in the day. Now, some of this may be because it was usually discovered after the act was complete. The dead were in private and out of sight. And there weren't many accidental witnesses. And if there were cases, the records may have been burned, as was the case with bestiality accounts. They were considered far too offensive to remain on record. Now, cases emerge in anecdotal accounts and medieval church investigations. Now, Herodotus, writing about these various necrophilic cases, leads us to believe that this act was an offense to the living. Now, of course, this holds up today, but there are some complicating factors, such as the corpse itself as being seen as unclean. For example, the Israelites considered touching a corpse as defilement, and the person in contact with the dead body was seen to be in need of immediate purification. Obviously, this helps solidify and codify that taboo in Judeo-Christian culture from then till now. Right. I mean, if you can't touch them... You definitely can't, like, touch him in a biblical sense. (laughs) The book of Numbers says, Whoever touched the dead body or of any man that is dead and doesn't purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanliness is yet upon him. He shall be unclean. And Leviticus stipulates of a priest... Neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. So that sounds very like necrophilia, like go into the dead body. Yeah. Yeah. You you translate it. New translations. He shall not enter the place where any dead man's body lies. Well, that seems like it was bleached. Clean that up a little bit, right? So necrophilia itself wasn't even, like, recognized by the Catholic Church. It did not go under fornicato, like, you know, whoring, nor bestiality, but pollution with a tendency to whoring. Oh, my God. I love this language so much. Again, I just want to see it on a sign on a storefront. So... One of the most graphic early accounts of any kind of necrophilia or necrophilic fantasy that's well known is in the work of Marquis de Sade. Oh, no, not him. Oh, yes, him. Oh, no. So he was very French. (laughs) What are you saying? He was very French. He lived from 1740 to 1814. He died in a mental asylum. His books were banned until 1957. That's impressive. Um, He was even hidden from his descendants until the 1940s. He inspired Flaubert and Baudelaire, 
who obtained underground copies of his work, and he had a huge surrealist following. Shocking. Of course, he coined the term sadism. sadism. Yay, fun. What's your legacy going to be? <laughs> In his novels, Juliet and The 120 Days of Sodom, Desaad explored a mixture of sex and torture and pain and death and all the taboos. And usually he would start with kind of tame-ish departures from the norm. And by the end of it, just like wallop you over the head with perversity and taboo. In some stories, he spoke of carving new orifices in dead bodies in order to create a wound to penetrate. And then in a scene in Juliet, Duran, Juliet, and Claire Wall visit a cemetery where they have an orgy with a pile of rotting corpses. I can't imagine why this was banned. Who can? So there were details included like, you know, Juliet using the skeleton's bone to simulate a sex act. And Durand uses a severed hand uh, to stimulate her. And on coming across a cadaver, Juliet declares, It occurs to me that these bones, shaped as they are, might serve in the stead of pricks. No. Apparently. No. So he did not commit necrophilia, but he wrote about it. And he did admit to knowing a Parisian who ordered corpses to be brought to his home in order to indulge in necrophilia. So, speaking of the French. The French. So the word necrophilia was not actually used in Marquis de Sade's time. It was not really coined in relation to this. Until we get to this case of the vampire of Montparnasse. Everyone's a vampire. Or maybe he's a werewolf. Who knows? He's described in several ways. So the first occurrence of this idea of necrophilia was written up by Gusselin, a Belgian alienist from the mid-19th century. Now, his writing was referenced in an 1861 pathology textbook. One has to align these sad disorders of the reproductive instinct with the depraved taste and prompt certain individuals to profane female and even male cadavers and to exercise that ghastly passion on them. Ghastly passion. Yeah, so he's referencing this case. So, on March 15th of 1849, a 25-year-old man dragged himself into the hospital in Paris suffering from a serious gun wound on his right side. Now, rumors started spreading about this man's injuries. A Montparnasse Cemetery gravedigger heard the story. He knew the guards had been setting booby traps in the cemetery to catch this vampire that had been prowling around. Oh my god, it worked. <laughs> so, the gravedigger put two and two together and informed authorities who arrested this man... Francois Bertrand at the hospital. Now, one of Francois Bertrand's surgeons obtained a full written confession, which he provided at the young man's trial. Bertrand admitted to a long list of desecrations in various graveyards across the country, during which he had surrendered himself to horrendous acts of eviscerating and dismembering male and female corpses. In the testimony, he intimated that the young soldier... He was a soldier, by the way. Destructive monomania also involved an even more repulsive component. Yet he refrained from specifying exactly what he did. 
This is why there are a few records that actually spell it out. Right? So he was considered a slight man of delicate constitution who admitted to being prone to solitude in his childhood. Now, perhaps in recognition of this rejection he felt, he confessed that his parents stopped buying him toys as he broke everything. Now, as he was growing up, he would fantasize about necrophilic acts with rooms full of women. He admitted, I would, in my mind, torture them in every possible way, according to my desire. I would imagine them as dead before me and would defile their corpses. The mere closeness of a graveyard sent his pulse racing and his heart beating. So for one of human bodies as a young one, he obtained animals instead. (gasps) Necrozoophilia. Yes. He would cut open the abdomen, tear out the entrails, and masturbate during the act. Mm, Ew. Now in 1847, while in a graveyard, he happened to come across the grave of a newly buried corpse. Then this impulse with headache and palpitation of the heart became so powerful that although there were people nearby and he was in danger of detection, he dug up the body. In the absence of a convenient instrument for cutting it up, he satisfied himself by hacking it with a shovel. Oh my god. He simply said, I felt a need of mutilating dead bodies. You know, it was Tuesday and like... (sighs) So Bertrand went on to say that he was not only interested in sexual violation of the corpse, he was mostly interested in mutilation and masturbation. So this fits with that typology. Now Bertram would later describe his experience with the corpse of a 16-year-old girl. I covered it with kisses and pressed it wildly to my heart. All that one could enjoy with a living woman is nothing in comparison with the pleasure I experienced. After I had enjoyed it for about a quarter of an hour, I cut the body up, as usual, and tore out the entrails. Then, I buried the cadaver again. I really think that that gun was an act of God because I feel like he would have been slaughtering people. Like, it just seems like he was going to escalate. Yeah. Like, it's so violent. It is. so disturbing. It's very violent. But there was, of course, a very easy access. You know? So I think he probably would have only done that if access had been limited. I mean, who can say, I guess. Who can say? But But that's our, like, initial case... That is kind of written down in the medical literature. He gives a talk about it, you know, a lecture as they would do in the time. And it's written up and then, like I said, included in pathology textbook and becomes the initial written down case with the term necrophilia associated with it. And necrophilia is love of corpses or to love corpses. Love of the dead. Yeah. 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 So the dead. We have had a strange relationship with the idea of cadavers and corpses throughout history. Definitely. We don't know what to make of them, but we began to experience the first real modern shift around the time of the Enlightenment, the Great Enlightenment. Right, this is when you start having doctors wanting to dissect people. We really become interested on, in what's going on on the inside of people. And the church is like, yeah, we're going to need those bodies, you know... When we revelate, so don't be cutting them out. Right. And this really helps to start a formal debate between science and religion. Head-to-head, fighting over dead bodies. So they're elevated an object of major social discourse. Right, let's explain that a little further. So, you know, the church's stance, and the overall stance then, and depending on where you are now, was that in the second coming, as told, you know, in the... New Testament, all of the dead will rise again. And they're going to need their bodies. And they need their bodies to do that. 
Clearly. Because it couldn't be a metaphor. Metaphors Definitely are the not. work of the devil. Definitely. So Puns too. Oh, I'm going to hell. <laughs> Probably. So, elevated discourse going on over corpses. This needs to be talked about because it's the church and the science. These are two major cultural institutions. And so we get this big debate. Now, around 1751, anxieties were being expressed in these kind of satirical prints that were being circulated, such as Hogarth's depictions of the dissecting table, which was titled The Reward of Cruelty. Rowlandson created a print called The Perversing Surgeon, which added a sexual dimension to dissection. And there's a surgeon pictured alone, leering over the torso of a beautiful young woman. And grave robbing was also becoming more common, and it was satirized by Rowlandson in his drawing Resurrection Men in 1775. And this shows two grave robbers digging up a corpse, and there's a skeleton also representing death hanging out with them, holding a lantern. And of course, we talk, we've talked about Resurrection Men in the past, and, and all of the you know, really complicated laws that were passed about which corpses could be used in kind of medical dissection. Well, it was not this one. This one was not allowed. And in this specific drawing, one of the men is like lying on top of the corpse in a suggestive way. No. In a similar vein, another of Rollingson's pictures, Death in the the Dissecting Room, which which was produced in 1815, shows a pretty corpse lying on the floor, and it's about to be sliced open by an unscrupulous surgeon. But, I mean, these are just... Paintings. I mean, it's not like people were actually, you know, leering over beautiful dead bodies. One might think. One might think. However, at Edinburgh, an anatomist named Dr. Robert Knox was in possession of a female corpse that he decided was too lovely to dissect. And so he kept her in a tub of whiskey and would allow his students to come in and view this beautiful naked corpse of a young girl and it was the body of mary peterson who was a teenage prostitute who'd been killed in one of the only real life murder for anatomist scandals in the history of the world oh my gosh he got higher enrollment numbers in his class so everybody wanted to see the naked prostitute in a barrel of whiskey yes okay dead you also dead right (laughs) and then you know you have this interest in the possibilities for technology as a remedy to death. And this is something you see played out in Frankenstein. But it delves into that avenue of corpse sex when Frankenstein's like, I want a mate and she's going to be dead too. And so then we get this weird idea of like dead bodies having sex with each other. And then we move on to this very strong motif of the fatal feminine. Yeah, I mean, we kind of talked about that with in our murder ballads episode. You know, this beautiful dead girl being the perfect woman. Such low expectations they had for us then. And so the female body became linked with doctoring and anatomy and experiments and pacifism and all of these weird tropes in a really interesting way. You can go look at the Murder Ballads episode that is full of it. Uh, Also, the Missing Bride episode. It's a heavy theme there as well. But you sort of see this playing out 
this objectification and not in like a, a new feminist sense, but like in a very literal way. Literally an object in a uh, barrel of whiskey. You see it playing out in the barrel of whiskey. You also see it playing out with Mary Blandy. She's interesting because of the murder act of 1851, which stipulated that only bodies of murderers is convicted of murder and executed for the crime could be used by anatomist for dissection. So what'd she do? She poisoned her father. Mm. Um, I bet he deserved it. <laughs> so a pamphlet was produced that was titled A Genuine and Impartial Account of the Life of Miss M. Blandy. And so she was sentenced to be hanged before a large crowd. And the pamphlet narrator languished lovingly over the intimate details of her execution and her bodily appeal. Her clothes were described down to the ribbons and bonnet she wore. Her female form was outlined with care. Even in death, it seemed, her figure retained its pert bosom, its shining hair, and trim waistline. The author tells us that Blandy begged to be hanged decently, not too high, so the crowds could not see up her petticoat. In the event, when her body was cut down, it was passed among the crowd, revealing all. So she was literally passed around, people like looked up her skirts and like just leered over her. And the public is interacting with death in a very strange way. And it's also collapsing death and sexuality in a very perverse, posthumous shaming of this woman. It is really interesting. It says a lot. I mean, when you're talking about the medical stuff, and it makes me think of the anatomical venuses that were so popular. Which is probably an entire episode, but a brief primer. They would have dummies made of wood and wax that looked like women with their entrails and anatomy exposed. And they were used to teach anatomy because, you know, there was not a wealth of female murderers being executed to be passed around anatomy labs. But they could usually be pulled apart, you know, like the one in your science class, but more sexy. But that's the thing is that it's it's how they're like laying. Well, it's a very kind of suggestive kind of. Well, just for contrast, the male models stood. And these were like laying out with their head kind of tilted and looking up to the like, side. Like, have you seen St. Teresa in Ecstasy? Kind of that. And they had hair. They had real hair. Eyelashes. and Yeah. And like full painted faces. And they were made of wax. So they like... They were movable and their bodies gave and stuff, which is really creepy. Uh, but they were produced in from about 1784 to 1788 in Florence. And they were very popular and they continued to be on display, you know, in private salons and eventually in public by the 19th century. However, they were never displayed in mixed company. Of course not. Because, and that, to me, just indicates that they knew there was something a little bit <laughs> mm, raunchy about it. And we couldn't talk about our beautiful dead girls motif without mentioning Lizzie Seidel. Who's that? So, you know, the drowned Ophelia painting? Right. By Millet. She's the model, Lizzie Seidel. And so she is very instrumental. That image is very instrumental in reinforcing this Victorian connection with women and submissiveness and sex and death and all of that. But the painting was wildly popular. However, after her death... People started spreading rumors that it was linked to the creation of the painting itself. Oh, so an urban legend came up around oh, it. yes. <laughs> they said that she had died from cold, uh, from being in the water so long modeling for this painting. 
However, this is not true. She'd actually committed suicide. So she overdosed on laudanum in 1860. She'd been estranged from her husband, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, for about two years before that took place. And he was stricken with grief upon hearing this news and decided that he should put a book containing the only copies of some of his original poems in her casket. How emo of him. It was very. And this whole series of events really cemented her as this like queen of death. I mean, the painting is still extremely popular. Yes. I mean, it it is a beautiful painting from an objective sense. That's the problem. No kidding. (laughs) I think that is the problem is that it's like, it is pretty. (laughs) And then you get the rest of it. It's even more interesting. Now put the, Poems in the coffin with her. But then around 1870... He regretted it? He regretted it. And so, so what did he do? He had her exhumed no, and no. got the book out of her coffin. And then everyone's like, these poems suck. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, it's emo love poetry, shut up. And then he went to fix his eyeliner and everyone cried. But no, the exhumation of her body just fueled this further. Oh, of course. And so she really kind of became this weird legend creature. But you can see these evolving attitudes where it's gone from repulsion to fascination. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're starting with you can't look at them. Like, don't touch. Mm -hmm. We're starting with do not touch or you will be separated from the tribe of Israel. And then we go further down the road and we get to the point it's like, it's for science. And then we have this weird little moment where it's like, it's for love. What? Love ruins everything. Love, huh? <laughs> we went from enlightenment to to not. <laughs> and it is so interesting to see where we are today with our idea of what to do with the dead. The dead, dead bodies. What do you do with a dead body? We're Southern and we talk about death more openly than I think most regions of the country. The Southern Gothic thing is not just in William Faulkner. Right. It thrives there. <laughs> yeah, he and Flannery have kind of really got it nailed down. Yeah, I, I think got that shit tied. They got that shit on lock. And then Anne Rice made it sexy. <laughs> and then Anne Rice made it sexy. Sex ruins everything. Back to our urban legend. You know, we're like we went to see uh, we went to the Houston Museum of Natural History and we had, went with our four year old and our seven year old and we went to see mummies. Sure did. And they're like, is that real? And we're like, yes. And it's like a real person. And I say, yes. yes. <laughs> and they're like, she's like, is he sleeping? I'm like, no, he's dead. It's dead body. He's dead. He's been dead for a really long time before anyone you knew was ever born. Promise. He's dead. They don't come back to life. He's dead. And I was like, God, this is dark. Like, as I'm saying it, I'm like, this is like, this is territory most people wouldn't go with. The mummy, you know, like with kids that young, but we just talk about it a little differently here. It's more open. And that's today, too, because in the past, people were would have wakes in their homes and Mm -hmm. that was the norm and everyone would stay up and, you know, stay with the body. I mean, you just look at the funerary practices and and that's really is kind of almost a modern change. You know, it was interesting that I read in one paper that. British funerals rarely include wakes or even public viewings. 
like as the uh, the norm in the United States and especially in the South. And I like when you said that to me, I was like, God, why do we do it two days? Like, why do we do that two it's days? Tradition. But is no one asking like, does this need to be two days off work? Do we need to extend the morning for two days? Like, do we need? I want to see papers on this. Like, I want to see what the psychological community says about wakes and if they're actually helpful or if it's more like, why do we wallow? Well, what's helpful is so in a cultural context, Mm -hmm. you know, it is following cultural norms can be helpful, you know, because some cultures, it's like you got to put them in the ground as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that's the norm. And if that's not followed, it can be distressing. It causes crisis. It right. causes a problem to where, you know, with us, we'd be like, wait, we didn't have the wake. We didn't have the funeral. What do you mean? Why is it already buried? Mm-hmm. And that would cause distress. Right. So it all has to make sense in context. I do find that so fascinating, though, because it's you know, the cultures are pretty, pretty well linked. And a lot of our norms come from English norms. And so you have to wonder where the separation happened like when it changed here or there to where the wake is an entire day well a lot of our in the south there's a lot of irish mm-hmm. and even if you know there there's still those like catholic roots even if they aren't catholic you know catholics have very interesting kind of ideas about dead bodies and you have reliquaries and pieces of dead saints everywhere <laughs> Here's a question as I raise my hand. How do we go from the Israelites who are like, you don't touch it or you're out of the tribe to the Catholics who are like, what if we just save a little? (laughs) (laughs) It's holy. It's magic. It's like the magic penis. What did they teach you in Catholic school? (laughs) It was a joke. (laughs) But it is interesting that over the last century, the ideas of, of death and how to deal with death and the dead and specifically how to deal with like a dead body, you have changed so much from before one english anthropologist jeffrey gore wrote in one of his essays the pornography of death and he argued that death had become culture's new sex taboo unspoken and out of the cultural zeitgeist it's not something we were dealing with every day so is he saying that our culture is just so saturated in sex that the only thing left to cringe over is death like it's the yeah it's the new thing we can't even talk about it's the new like you know we used to not be able to even talk about sex and now it's like we didn't show our ankles yes and now i've got girls in swimsuits oh my god because it's from like the 50s or something mm-hmm. but now of course that's an older idea of things so ernest becker who won a Pulitzer prize for a study the denial of death stated that the idea of death the fear of it haunts the human animal like nothing else It's a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it's the final destination of man. Primates are not bothered by the fear of death. Now, he went on to further explore these notions that death had become inherently hidden within our modern Western society, arriving at the idea that modern man denies death as a fundamental component of his physiological self and expresses it as other fears or other phobias. Right, like you're not afraid of dying from a snake bite, you're afraid of snakes. Is that kind of what he's saying? Yes. Interesting. Yes. So this is in opposition to Freud's theories. Oh, well, what does Freud say? Freud corner. 
<laughs> he said that people do not really fear death. They wish for it. Because, we, yeah, we cannot imagine our own death. And when we attempt to do so, we can perceive that we are, in fact, still spectators. Hence, no one believes in his own death. In the unconscious, every one of us is convinced of his own immortality. I kind of have to side with Freud. You side with Freud? I am. I'm going to say that, like, like, imagining your own death does make you aware that it is not happening because you're conscious. Like, I think, therefore, I am, even. Um, and so if you're looking for just a reminder that you're alive, that that's one. I see what he's saying. And I do think I come down more on that side. Like, I do think it is completely, like, you can't imagine what it's like to be dead. It's, it's, it's impossible to even think of it. In any real sense. You can imagine your funeral. You can imagine people being sad, but you can't fathom not existing. The brain rejects it. It's like an imaginary number. Like you get that it exists, but you don't really know what it means. (laughs) No, it's impossible to like really contemplate. And so, you know, like the idea of like, is death a taboo in our culture is really, it's hard to say if it's yes or no. You know, some people will argue that we are trying to kind of high death in our modern funerary practices by like you know making them up and you know preserving them and you know using the casket and all the kind of just finery that goes along with it but you can also say it's just honoring that person by showing like it's an act of care two stories very different like i remember my great aunt is a hairdresser And when my great-grandmother passed away, she went to the funeral home and got permission from the mortician, and she did my grandmother's hair. You know, I've always thought of that as, like, this really loving gesture. No, it definitely is. And that's a point for, like, it's loving, it's honoring, it's... But then, very flip side, we went to eat out a few weeks ago. I have no clue where this is going. At Bistro Byron's. (laughs) Oh, God, you're right. And a man died. Well, we don't know that. He died. Okay. (laughs) He died. This man, like, I made eye contact when he was walking in. He was this fabulous-looking character. He had a cane. He looked like he was 100 years old. He had this long beard and, like, a Stetson hat and suspenders. And, like, he waved, like, said hello. And I said hello. And we went and sat with the kids on the patio when we ordered our food. And he was inside. And he was inside right by the window. And I looked and noticed people holding up sheets. Yes. And none of the other diners seemed to be very aware of what was happening inside the restaurant because they like couldn't get the people off the patio because they would have had to walk right through what was going on while all the EMTs were coming. And there were people laughing and drinking and eating their food. And this man died. It was a surreal moment. It was insane. And my kids are at the table and I don't want to freak them out by letting them know any of this is going on. So I know this is going on and I'm just eating my food like everything's normal and I'm freaking out. And, you know, they're literally shuffling EMTs in and out and, you know, trying to get him out on a stretcher without calling any attention. And there are two restaurant employees holding up a tablecloth in front of the window to literally hide death and not make anyone uncomfortable so i can see both sides (laughs) there's not an answer yeah you know there's not i had an existential crisis about this a little later (laughs) you know some people will say that in our modern society we almost feel like we've conquered death you know with just the medicalization of it and the secularization of Mm -hmm. it 
that we have conquered it instead of denying it. I'm pretty sure everybody still dies. Like, I don't think, how could we possibly conquer death? Like, oh, no, but just like kind of in our minds, mm. you know, how we view it. It's like, oh, I'm not going to die when I'm 50, been plowing the field all my life. It's like, no, you know, I'm sick. I've got cancer. I can go and get treatment. A survivor. You know, that kind of idea. Oh, like all the language around it. Like lost yes. their battle with cancer. Lost yes. their, like that. Yeah, that is so interesting. And probably another episode. That language is insane to me. It's really interesting. Like insanely interesting is what I mean. I mean, like one idea like, like that with like if a young person dies, they're cheated of life. You know, they had their life ripped away from them. It's so unfair. But for some reason, like, why are they entitled to a life? They're getting really heavy here, but it's like our language around it is is very interesting. It's presumptuous. Yes. The thing old ladies say where I'm from is like, they had so much ahead of them. Right. He was so promising young man. Has it always been that way? No, it wasn't. Of course not. No. I was just thinking, like, would you have heard that language at other times in history? And no, it was like not assumed at all that every child you had would thrive and grow up to be an adult. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. You know, we kind of looked at, the, you know, our Western ideas of death and the dead body and, and what it means. And I think it's interesting to look at some of the other cultures and kind of compare just the radical differences that some other cultures have. So in Bali, there's a small village of Chunyan, that sits on the eastern shore of Bali's Lake Batur, in the shadow of the island's most famous volcano, Mount Batur. So in the rest of Bali, corpses are cremated in your standard kind of Hindu tradition. But in Chunyan, it's very different. The body is allowed to publicly rot. And when the process is complete, the bones are just kind of added to the pile. No one knows how long this has been done for, but it most likely dates back from before the Hindus conquer the area hmm. because they never conquered this area. Oh, that's interesting. And that was in the 14th century. Wow. That's gotta be a big pile. So locals here consider themselves like the Bali Mula or the authentic Balinese. You know, they have kind of, they feel like they're like the original culture of mm-hmm. the island. So they were, they're very opposed to cremation because Mount Batur was kind of like this, fire god and considered human burning the of a body to be usurping of his authority i can actually follow that logic so there are two other smaller cemeteries and one's for people who died due to accident or foul play and their deaths are considered to be polluted and their spirits unfulfilled in distress and potentially hostile and there's another cemetery for babies and young children who are considered to be godlike due to their lack of worldly corruption. But in the main cemetery, men will bring the deceased and dig a shallow indentation around the contour of the corpse to help its decomposition. Now, it's pl- they are placed under a special tree which towers over the cemetery ground and serves as a home for the spirits of the dead. They are covered with this latticework cage to keep birds from feasting on the bodies. Now, there can only be 11 bamboo cages at a time, due to, like, numerology. Okay. So they're placing this dead under the protection of this large banyan tree that's considered very sacred. Now, the thing is, you can 
visit the cemetery via boat ride. And if you were over there or other kind of Westerners, you might see people like posing for pictures with the dead bones and playing with the bones or things and going like, holy fuck, are you serious? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we went to the San Jacinto Monument this weekend. We walked over to the cemetery and my son stepped on a grave and I was like, Remy! (laughs) (laughs) And we told him a ghost was going to follow him home because we're really bad people. We're bad parents. So yeah, I would probably have a minor palpitation at least. (laughs) But how is this viewed in their culture? I think it's funny. Okay. There's nothing left in those bones. Those bones are just remnants. This is making me feel really fucked up. They <laughs> said so the cemetery ground returns the villagers to the elemental forces from which they came. The dead, the spirits are cradled by the banyan tree. And the bones, they are important, but they're just kind of symbols just left behind to remind people of the cycle of life and death. They're relics. They really are. Interesting. Now, there's another interesting group in Indonesia, the Taraja people. Now, they're indigenous to the mountainous Pingala region of Indonesia, which is mostly Protestant, but also Catholic. But when a family member passes away, they still follow the traditional uh, Aluk Tudolo, or the way of the ancestors, where they treat the dead body as if it is sick. Okay. They give food, water, maybe cigarettes on a daily basis because it's believed that the spirit remains near the body and craves care. Now, the corpses can be kept in different places, but they are often kept in the southernmost room of their home because heaven lies in that direction. These are, like, they're just kept in the, in the house? Yes. Okay. I have questions. Do they use furniture? Like, do they put them, like, in a bed? Or are they, like, in a special spot? I mean, like, they, might, they are in the special spot in the house. They, have to, they face a certain way. Okay. But they are, yeah, they might be sitting or whatever. Do other people use that room? Or is it, like, cordoned off for the specific no, purpose? No, they're, they're, they're cared for. They're cared for like they're sick. For how long? Okay, so the body faces west because that's how where sick people should face. Okay. And not till the first day of the funeral are they allowed to face south. But the funeral may not take place for months or years after a person has died. Because the family has to save up enough money to have a respectable funeral. I find this very interesting. I think it is a a, a nice gesture of care and I see its value I have health concerns. Well, they are sometimes preserved. Okay. In the meantime, with like formalin. Okay. So they might be basically embalmed? In a way. Preserved, okay. Pres- I think is better. Preserved. Um, so the reason that they can stay for so long is that the funerary customs are so intense. Like they just require a huge investment. Okay. Because they have to sacrifice a number of water buffalo okay that seems like a very large expense it is definitely and they're not actually considered dead until the first water buffalo is sacrificed and the more that are sacrificed the easier they'll find their way to puya heaven afterlife, afterlife etc and the recommended amount is about 24 24 water buffalo oh the animals are put through trials of strength 
before they are sacrificed and their horns after are placed outside the family home. So the more horns adorning the property, the higher the status of the deceased. So by the time the buffaloes are bought and other arrangements are made, it can cost between 50000 U.S. dollars to 250000 U.S. dollars. And this is in a very poor region. And they've traced this archaeologically to at least like a thousand years ago. At least. Now the tribe's young are placed in the smallest burial grounds known as the baby trees. If a child dies before they start teething, it's wrapped in a cloth and placed inside a hollow-out space in the trunk of a growing tree. And locals believe that as the child's soul will become part of the tree as it heals. It's actually kind of beautiful. It, it is. Like, I, I kind of really like that. So every one to three years, a clan will gather for the ritual known as Ma Nene, where the dead will be taken out of their coffins, cleaned, and given a new set of clothing. Seriously? Oh, this is, yeah, this is an, a completely to honor the dead. People, family comes from everywhere to come and swap stories and, and to come help take care of the deceased and take pictures and, and et cetera. So is it very, like, I assume it is not a clinical thing. It's not like you just get them out and do this as quickly as possible and hustle them back into the oh, casket no, and get them no, out of the no. way. So are, how do they interact with the the exhumed Oh yeah, they, like I said, they'll clean them, they dress them, they'll, like I said, you can see so many pictures of people taking pictures with their ancestors, they'll like parade them around the community, they're very interactive with them, it's not a, it's not like nowadays you go clean the cemetery <laughs> on All Souls Day or whatever. This is like Dia de los Muertos, but like for real. <laughs> for real, for real, for real. Not sugar skulls. <laughs> real skulls. I think it's so interesting to, I mean, that we could go on and on about different cultures. Attitudes towards dead bodies, those were two that I thought were kind of beautiful traditions. It just seems like such an interesting way to bring your ancestry forward, like to present it to the next generation. Right, I mean, like I think of like on All Souls Day going and cleaning the graves and you go with your grandma and she tells you about the people and you kind of clean it. It's of course not the exact same, Mm -hmm. but it's a similar idea. Well, I have very happy memories of going with my my mom, my grandmother, my great grandmother, various aunts, etc. and going to the to the cemetery and cleaning. But we did it every season usually every two months or whatever when i was a kid it was a very common thing i have very nice cemetery memories again we're southern sorry (laughs) i wanted to take these in and just be like that's a beautiful ritual but like i said i was like i have health concerns which i think just shows you how exactly like how ingrained that is a preserved dead body is has zero health concerns you know (laughs) We can look at other cultures and say, oh, that's so different. That's just not how we've, we know how to deal with death. But I thought it would be interesting, kind of for the sake of argument, to look at a Western case that has a very unusual mixed reputation. (laughs) There were very different response than the other stories. Yes. So this is the story of Carl von Kossel or Carl Tanzler. Count. Count Carl von Kossel. (laughs) That was a lie. But. (laughs) Debatable. He he was a real person. That's for sure. He was born in Germany. And his childhood was pretty much unremarkable. 
So later in life, he would refer to this incident in which he claimed that a very distant ancestor came to him and this relative revealed to him this beautiful face of a dark-haired girl, and he decided that this girl must be his one true love. Cut to. He's a radiology tech living in Florida, working in the United States Marine Hospital in Key West, Florida, and he is treating this patient who has tuberculosis. Her name is Maria Helena Milargo de Hoyos, and her family calls her Helen. She's Cuban-American, and she's the middle daughter of a cigar maker and a homemaker, and she'd been previously married to a man named Louis Mesa in 1926 when she was just 16. But Mesa left her after she had a miscarriage never to return. Now, Tansler doted on her ferociously. He bought her medicines and visited her often. And so he met her in the hospital. Yes. When, and he knew she was sick and he decided it was his life's work to save her life. And so he's buying her medicines. He's visiting. He's even borrowing, without permission, expensive equipment, including like an x-ray machine, and installing it in the DeHoyas' home. Oh, God. He was unable to save her, and she died in 1931 when she was just 21 years old. And Tansler was known to her family. He'd brought her jewelry and other gifts before her death, and he'd also tried experimental cures of one manner and another, and he paid for her funeral. Despite having his own wife and children. Oh, he had his own family? Yes, but he'd left them by now. He was convinced that De Hoyos had been prophesied in this vision that he had when the dead relative came to him and revealed the face, uh, okay. and it was her. So this is, this is fate. These are larger forces at work, and he's on a mission now to be with her. Unable to accept her death with her parents' permission, he had her exhumed from her original grave and put in a mausoleum that he had specially built for her. This is all with permission, all so above far, board. Now above ground. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do that. So unbeknownst to anybody, he took this opportunity to clean and re-embalm body. Okay. And he wrote about the experience in his memoirs. He said, decay had set in in the most disheartening manner. Only with the greatest care was I able to peel the pieces of textile from her body. This took hours. So he sponged her face with a specially prepared solution and spread her clean body onto a white sheet and sprayed it with preservatives. So he was trying to slow down her decay. And to this end, he decided to keep the body above ground in the mausoleum. And he visited her every day. And he brought presents, like flowers or a comb or a shawl. Now, allegedly. Allegedly. He even had a phone installed in the mausoleum. Really? So that he could call when he wasn't able to visit. Oh, well, that was a thoughtful of him. How? Who answered? Oh, somebody answered. Did they? I just, like, I don't believe it. <laughs> this is one where I'm like, nah. Now, another thing I'm like, nah. Some accounts say that he used a child's wagon to pull her from the mausoleum to his home. But this is too creepy. <laughs> and I draw the line <laughs> here. Soon he couldn't stand her being so far away in the mausoleum. And he decided to transport her to the cabin of an airplane that he hid. And around this time, maybe not a coincidence, he was fired from his job at the hospital. Found out about that stolen x-ray machine. <laughs> stolen something. So... In the process of moving her out of the mausoleum, he opens the casket and he saw that she was pure despite the mud and slimy rags 
in which she had been lying for so many months. He kissed her lips and breathed deeply into her body, so her bosom rose. He carefully redressed her in a wedding gown, and she was now his sweet wife. Oh, God. So how how long has she been dead for? Around two years. Two years. And so he's putting her in a wedding dress and moving her to an airplane. Yes. So then he moved the plane with the body in it to a hangar at South Beach so he could sleep beside her. And he also built a laboratory. Was he trying to Frankenstein this? I think yes. So he kept equipment that he needed to preserve her, her incubator, sterile tissues, chemicals, and wax to keep the remnants of her body together. And as the years passed, he had to keep her bones together with piano wire. And he performed this time-consuming daily ritual of applying new, fresh wax to her body and putting perfumes on her. He also made wigs of her hair to keep as much of her genuine as he could. Because he was basically, at this point, like rebuilding her. Yeah, so he was putting the wig back on her. Yes. Of her hair. Yes. That he'd removed. Yes. Okay. You're keeping up. Don't know if I want to. (laughs) And he loved her, even though she was, at this point, rotting. He said, I looked deeply into the fallen cavity of her eyes, like deep, empty black holes. I saw her dried lips slightly parted and her white teeth gleaming between them. Now, he eventually replaced her deep caverns of not eyes anymore with glass ones. And he decided that they should rent a house together. And he was finally able to put her in bed. And he had waxes and sprays and things of that nature delivered because he couldn't bear the thought of leaving her. And at night, he would read to her and play organ dirges. Now, eventually the neighbors did become suspicious. From the dirges or the smell? I think it was the large quantities of women's products that he was having delivered, even though they'd never seen a woman living at the house. That is suspicious. So, combination of Carl's habit of routinely buying women's clothes, his absence from the mausoleum, and a local boy's sighting of him through a window dancing with what appeared to be a giant doll aroused serious suspicion. Who believed him? What do you mean? The kid? Yes. I can imagine. Kid's riding up on his bike and he's like, Mommy, Mommy. Guess what I saw? He had a giant doll. All right, little Timmy. Go play with your toys. But Ma. Timmy, Daddy's trying to have his whiskey. But Dad, it was a giant doll. And then they see like a car, like a cargo load of women's clothes. And they're like. No, then they see Tansler pulling the kid's wagon. He stole my wagon again. Now, the gossip eventually made its way back to Helen's sister, Nana, who insisted on seeing the body, which she thought was still in the mausoleum. Tansler managed to convince her not to go to the mausoleum, but instead to come to his house where the body was. What? (laughs) This has gone on at this point nine years. Nine years of this. And she was like, sure, I'll come over. I don't think he told her what she was going to see. Uh, okay. It's even possible he thought she was going to be like, happy to see her sister doing so well. Mm. We don't know the level of delusion yet. But she was very, very unhappy when he presented I can't Helen, imagine. Why? And she reported him to the authorities. Upon further investigation, they found that he'd written her love letters daily. They also discovered that the technician had consistently had sex with what was left of her body. Dr. Depu, 
who made the autopsy on Helen, stated, I found a tube wide enough to permit sexual intercourse. At the bottom of the tube, there was cotton. In an examination of the cotton, I found there was sperm. So so he had like built a vagina into her corpse. Yes. Although the events were traumatic for Helen's family, he was never violent and he was unquestionably devoted to Helen's body. Okay. And this love story... Love story? Provoked an outpouring of sympathy. Really? Letters of support poured in for this man. Strangers and acquaintances, people who actually knew him, visited him in prison and brought him food and gifts and were very inspired or sympathetic to this this entire case. This is shocking. <laughs> that I mean, people were like, how romantic. So sweet. It's not sweet. No. It's not. So the trial was a media blitzkrieg. Like it was everywhere in the press. And most people, especially women, found him to be this charming, eccentric, romantic, and were horrified by the idea that he would be incarcerated for such devotion. He was fined, but released, and he was examined by a psychiatrist because the judge ordered this to be done. And he was found to be sane despite his obsession. So it was just like a fixed, solitary, delusion, paraphilic disorder. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now, this was decided by a court-appointed psychiatrist, despite the fact that while on the stand, he declared that he planned to use his airship or his airplane to take Helen high into the stratosphere so the radiation from outer space could penetrate her tissues and restore life to her somnolent form. Oh my God. But this made it about as much sense as any other argument put forward during this entire hearing. After the trial concluded... Helen's body was put on display at a local funeral home where thousands of people got to go see what she looked like. And people were charged a dollar to view her. look at that. Now, finally, after the public viewing and the trial and the media sensation and her nine-year romance with Tanzler, she was buried in an unmarked grave. So the media and Tanzler would not find her. Then the court returned the body to Maria's sister, so this could be done. And the statute of limitations had run out on the charge of grave robbing, which was really the only thing that Florida could charge him with. Law on the books. Yes. But after the trial, he asked if he could please have her body back. Um, no. Not no, but hell no, they say. Hell no. We're getting like a buck a pop over here. We can't have a (laughs) back. God, it's terrible. So he settled for creating a life-size doll of Helen, which he lived with for the rest of his life. It was an honest to God, Lars and the real girl, life-size figure based on a death mask that he'd made. And there are pictures. (sighs) Oh boy, are there. So he returned to his hometown in Germany where he died in poverty in 1952. So it is interesting that even all in everything we've talked about, about how we view death and corpses and how we interact with them a certain way in western culture it's not a rule no if the story is good enough we're like 
I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) He's just romantic. Now, it is interesting. You know, we've talked about these kind of other cultures that have these beautiful, respectful ways that they deal with corpses and the dead. And that's not always the case. So one interesting group of people are the Agori. Okay. So you'll read clickbaity kind of titles and headlines if you ever look into this. Like, from meditating on dead bodies to having sex with menstruating women surrounded by corpses. 15 jaw-dropping facts about Agoris, the Shiva followers. Ooh, that is clickbaity. It's said that they will kidnap strangers for sacrifice to the goddess and eat the bodies. Tells of their bloodlust are recorded for centuries. Necrophilia is a very common accusation. It's believed that at will an agori can assume the shape of a bird, fish, or animal, and they can bring back to life a corpse of which he has eaten a part of. Is any of this true? In a way. Okay. Well. So this is the most extreme of all the Indian sects, with a concentration on forcible conversion of a laminated human personality into a divine personality. So Gori actually translates to that which is not difficult or terrible. I know that this is probably a relic of the caste system. In a very rigid and codified society, this is an extreme example of like the unclean. Right. So, you know, in the old caste system, the lowest of the low are the unclean. They, you know, would include people that handled bodies, anyone that came in contact with them. And so this kind of takes that idea and really turns it on its head. The point of their spiritual practice is to train themselves to cease distinguishing between pure and impure, beautiful and ugly, food and filth. They follow the left-handed path. Uh. So this is anything that kind of goes against your normal social mores. You know, breaking taboos makes the magic or your spiritual essence more powerful. And that's the case in a variety of cultures. Oh, for sure. So they worship Kali and Shiva. Shiva, of course, the destroyer of evil and the transformer, part of the Hindu trinity. And Kali is his consort, uh, the revered Hindu mother goddess. She's seen wearing a necklace of bloodied skulls or heads, usually standing triumphantly on a slain enemy, or Shiva sometimes. Uh, Skull in one hand, noose in another, sword in a third hand, pair of clippers in the fourth. So the Agori people are really trying to subvert these ideas of cleanliness and purity. And they do this in the most extreme way possible. They'll eat the most horrible food to subdue their natural appetite and to acquire great power over themselves. So it's a form of instituting self-control, like self-discipline almost? In a way, they are getting some of that. But by doing that, they're taking power over the kind of idea of purity and the right-handed path. It's a... It's purely subversion, like in a very literal way. It is, it is, in a literal way. They are literally trying to subvert things, but for a higher cause. You can find many of the Agoris in Varanasi, which is also known as Benaras, which is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, nestled on a curve of the Ganges. And it is, was founded by Shiva. So Mark Twain wrote in 1897, Benares is older than history, Older than tradition, 
older even than Legend and looks twice as old as all of them put together. I love that man's way with words. Which, if you've not read, Travels Along the Equator, fantastic book. It's full of ancient temples and many cremation ghats. Because as it's on the shores of the Ganges, it is a very holy place to have the body cremated. Okay. So after the fires burn for a few hours, the remains, ashes, wood, and bone are just kind of pushed into the Ganges. Now, the Agori are usually found around these cremation ghats. One local said, be careful, because the Agors will use the ghosts and demons that haunt the cremation ghats late at night to take control of your mind. You'll later wake up down there not knowing what they've made you do, maybe even eating human flesh like them. Oh, so it's like one step beyond peer pressure, it's ghost pressure. Ghost pressure. So they will cover themselves with the ash from these funeral pyres. Oh, so they are letting it fly, man. Like they are... They're owning it. Oh, they have uh, one of their kind of traditional, you know, items they have. One of the only items they own is a kapalik, and it is a skull cap that they use to drink out of. They are owning it. They're they, like... they, very, they drink very heavily alcohol, very heavily. Okay. And they will sit on the corpses to meditate. As one devotee said, I obeyed my master's command to sit on the corpses washed up on shore and to meditate. At first, the smell was terrible, but soon enough, the power of the mantra given to me by my master helped me not notice that. Have you gone nose blind? (laughs) So they will fish bodies out of the Ganges that are not burned, and sometimes in special rituals, will eat of the flesh. But this is not an everyday practice. This is an isolated... And they're not killing people. Definitely not. Why would a body be in the river not cremated? So... If you can't afford it, okay. it's very expensive to do this. Sometimes they will. And there are certain classes of deaths. There's seven different deaths where they will not be cremated and just have kind of like a water burial. Okay. So it wouldn't be an extreme rarity for a full body to be in the water. So the follower again said, I chanted a mantra my master taught me as I grabbed the body. The flesh was very soft and some of it came away in my hand. I kept chanting the mantra and ate it. Because of the mantra's power, the flesh tasted as if I were eating a mango. Very delicious. He said, I'm not a cannibal. The person's already dead. And so the body is just a lump of flesh. So something you can see there is this separation between the spirit and the body. Like it is. And it's a way of reinforcing the divinity of spirit and the irrelevance of your like terrestrial body. It can be seen that way for sure. They're also doing this to kind of bring home that message that people are deluding themselves by thinking that purity will divinity. I think that one thing that makes this case so interesting to me is how clearly the ideas behind the practice are articulated. Because I think in any case, If someone can say more than, I felt the need to mutilate dead bodies. Like, if people can say more than that, empathy can exist for for the underlying ideas. But their entire argument is that they're not hurting anyone because the body is irrelevant. Right. It's an interesting juxtaposition against everything we've just talked about. The way people interact with corpses is an uncomfortable mirror. When it's 
pristine and hidden and overly clean, we say it's denial. When it's overly familiar, we say it's desecration. When the body is held up as this love object and the center of a human being's devotion for nine years, we say that's creepy. Well, it is. It is, but... You know, that's too much love. It's too, it's obsession. It's pathology. When it's dismissive and it takes a soft chunk of flesh off a body from a river and eats it, we say that's inhumane. It's such a black box. It's so hard to see inside with any degree of clarity because if nothing else unites all humanity, death does. Everyone has to confront it. And we confront it in pieces throughout our life. You know, we have, we lose people we love and it's so deeply personal. Trying to codify a way to deal with that is excruciating. It never feels right. Because it's impossible to conquer death. It's even more impossible to deny it. And so in a way, it's never just a story. No, it's not just a story. 